Hello and welcome to A Photographic Life. This week with a slightly kind of editorial photography feel to it. I'm going to start off by asking a question. What makes a covers photographer? Well, US Vogue's cover of Kamala Harris taken by Tyler Mitchell uh, recently has seems to have uh, started a bit of a debate. Anna Wintour said, and Anna Wintour is the editor-in-chief of American Vogue, by the way, all of us felt very, very strongly that the less formal portrait of the vice president-elect really reflected the moment that we were living in. We felt to reflect this tragic moment in global history, a much less formal picture really reflected the hallmark of the Biden-Harris campaign. There was a lot of discussion online about the casual nature of the image, the informal styling and the washed out colour of Tyler Mitchell's work. I remember a similar discussion around the work of Jürgen Teller back in the 1990s and also Corinne Day. The discussion is not new, but the conversation in my mind should not be about photography, but about what makes a cover photograph. The Scottish-born New York-based Albert Watson photographed over 100 US Vogue covers and 40 covers for Rolling Stone. Annie Leibovitz photographed over 142 covers of Vanity Fair. David Bailey has shot over 300 covers for various Vogues. And the great Philippe Hausman shot over 100 covers for Life magazine. There are other great cover photographers, including Richard Avenon, of course, or Irving Penn, or Nick Knight, or Stephen Mizell, or Mark Seliger. They come specifically to my mind. I've no issue with Mitchell Tyler's work, and you may not like any of the work of the ph photographers that I've just uh, mentioned. I also have no, like, no problem with the idea of deconstructing the manufactured image, which has been an aspect of fashion photography from its earliest days. It's not new or edgy or revolutionary. Just look at Martin Harrison's brilliant book, Appearances. It's all about the history of fashion photography, for proof of that. The cover has a job to do, and some photography and some photographers cannot come up with those goods. That's not a comment on them as photographers. It's just a comment on them about the images they create and whether or not they work as a cover. I get the impression, but maybe I may be wrong here, that uh, US Vogue wanted Kamala Harris on the cover and they had these pictures from a previous shoot back in 2018. She wasn't available to do a new shoot and they used the old ones. I've been in that situation many times as a Condé Nast art director, which I was for 10 years. If this is the case, then it's not Tyler's fault. The magazine is who should explain the situation. And Wintour's weak defence perhaps supports my idea. Magazines are a political beast and the photographer is most often the one who's left outside of those politics. Talking of Irving Penn, I often talk about photographers being journalists, documentarians, and I believe that in whatever area they work in. I recently read this. In 1996, Vasilius Zatzi began his journey with Irving Penn, starting as an apprentice to the master photographer and rising to become the deputy director of the Irving Penn Foundation. 
Zatsi recently described Penn's understanding of his photographic purpose as that of a photojournalist. In a 1950s symposium titled What is Modern Photography? at the Museum of Modern Art featuring Lisette Medell, Walker Evans, Aaron Siskin and others, Penn spoke about his responsibilities as a photographer. He labels himself as a journalist, that's he says. His job is to communicate an idea or a message to the reader. That's one of the great qualities of Penn's work. Regardless of what he is photographing, he is able to tap into the essence of it in the pictures that he made. It's always wonderful reprieve to get lost in his work. They transport you and are timeless. I agree. This week, we welcome to the podcast explaining what photography means to him. I think one of the great living British photographers, somebody who I first met, I think roughly about eight or nine years ago. Anyway, who am I talking about? Well, he lives just down the road from me and his name is John Bulmer. John was born in 1938 in Herefordshire, the grandson of the founder of the Bulmer Cider Company. While still a student of engineering at Cambridge, he had photographs published in Varsity magazine, as well as a magazine he co-founded called Image. He also completed photo stories for the Daily Express and Queen magazine, whilst working as an assistant to photographers Larry Burrows and Bert Glynn. What a great couple of photographers to assist and learn from. Anyway, uh, John was expelled from Cambridge six weeks before his finals and uh, he got a job with the Daily Express and stayed there for two years. Bulmer is most often associated with his documentation of the north of England, which he began with his first assignment in 1960 for the iconic Town magazine. In 1965, he... Uh, first photographed the north of England in colour for the Sunday Times magazine, the magazine who he then went on to work for until 1973, the golden years. However, Bournemouth continued working for other publications, including the British edition of Geo. Bournemouth met his wife, Mai Zetterling, with whom he occasionally worked with as a cinematographer, as he combined photography with film commissions for the BBC and the Discovery Channel. As Bulmer moved away from photography to film, his earlier photographic work uh, was kind of put to one side until it was included in a 1983 exhibition at the Photographer's Gallery, British Photography, 1955-65, The Master Craftsman in Print. Bulmer's career in film continued to the mid-2000s when he retired and turned to digitising and cataloguing his earlier photographs. The result is two books of his work that have been published by Bluecoat Press, The North and Wind of Change. This is John Bulmer talking. I first became interested in photography as a teenager. Someone gave me a box brownie and I was fascinated by the mechanical aspects of it. I built an enlarger and a darkroom in the attic and I loved developing and printing my own pictures. But then I discovered the image. There was an exhibition in London called The Family of Man and I had the catalogue to that and it was just magic. Uh, I also went on to see books by Cartier-Bresson about his 
photographs all over the world, and it opened a whole new window on life to me, and I knew that I wanted to be a photographer. My parents felt I ought to get myself a proper degree so I could earn a living, and uh, I went off to Cambridge to study um, engineering. Well, I was meant to study engineering. I spent most of my time taking photographs, first for the university magazine Varsity, and then I started doing stories for... Magazines like Queen Magazine, which was starting up then. Plus, I became a sort of local stringer for the Daily Express. But what caused me the biggest trouble and the biggest excitement was that with a friend I did a story for Life Magazine on the night climbers of Cambridge, which that's the students who climb up the buildings at night. And this got me into a lot of trouble. The university authorities were not happy at all and they ended up throwing me out. However, I was, because I had contacts with the Daily Express, I went up to London and they effectively gave me a, a, a full-time job as a news photographer, which must have been one of the first times an amateur had, had ever moved straight into Fleet Street. And soon after, um, I started doing stories for Town Magazine, which was um, a wonderful new magazine that, that specialised in exciting photography. Up till that time, the, the pictures you saw in newspapers in England were fairly straightforward, all taken with a roller flex with a flash on the side. Things like picture post had, had long gone, and there wasn't really a lot of outlet for photography in Britain. But Town Magazine was something new and, and exciting. They sent me up to the north of England, and I, I loved it. I walked the streets and photographed what I saw. I, I wanted to work like Cartier-Bresson and just um, never ask people if I could photograph them, just react to what I saw. But I was also influenced by photography in Life magazine, people using 35mm cameras with wide and long lenses. And uh, that, that made it easier to grab what you what you wanted. And, and my experience on the Express was extremely good because news photography really teaches that you don't have a lot of chances. You have to go for it. So really my my sort of starting point was those pictures in the north of England. And, you know, 60 years later, I still think they're some of my best pictures and, and what I will be known for. In 1962, the Sunday Times started their colour supplement. And I was working for them right from the very first issue. I shared the, the first cover with David Bailey, although um, it wasn't a great cover, I have to said but soon after I was traveling all over the world for them and that was an amazing era when you could travel and yet the world was really very untouched and very few people did get on airplanes like not like now. I also did a story for the Sunday Times on the north of England and this was really the first time it had been done in color and I thought long and hard about this and I chose to do it in winter because I felt that cobbled streets in bright sunlight wouldn't quite make the atmosphere I was looking for. So I photographed in winter and I tried to use rain and fog to, to, to clarify the pictures and simplify them. Colour was, was strange because we were so used to working in black and white that colour seemed really difficult at the time. And now it's hard to understand that because everybody does everything in colour. But at that time, I felt that the the world was too complicated and too full of objects and with 
with black and white photography, you could simplify the picture and color made it more complex. Uh, so it really helped to use things like rain and fog and try and simplify the image. And that really was my, uh, uh, my style, if there was such a thing, I, um, and I loved it. I went on later to make films because things changed, but I still come back to those pictures from the North of England. To me, to me they'll, if anything, if I'm known for everything, for anything, it will be for that. Thank you, John, for your contribution this week. I did say at the beginning of this podcast that it was going to be a slightly editorially tinged. And um, John, picking up on a number of things there, uh, demonstrating, I suppose, the importance of the editorial commission to the photographer's of the past. I'm not quite sure how important they are today, which is uh, another discussion perhaps for another podcast. But also, I think, kind of demonstrating and voicing the importance of those who came before us, the makers who came before us, the photographers, the history of the medium, and how important that history of the medium is to us. You can't create the new without knowing what came before. I think that's true. I'm going to make that as a statement. But I think that if anything that we've learned over the past couple of weeks with the seismic changes that have been going on in the world and continue to go on in the world, uh, what we've recognised, I think, is the importance of the still image in recording those moments and also history, the fact that we're constantly living through history. So if that's important to us as people, surely the history of photography must be important to us as photographers. To dismiss it would literally be to dismiss all people who've gone before. And John there talking about the inspiration he took from the work of Cartier-Bresson and, of course, the, the classic uh, Family of Man exhibition, which I think still remains the highest-selling photography book of all time. And I also believe that it is still in print. Whilst we're talking about books still in print, I'm going to segue almost like a professional, but obviously not quite, to our most recent book, What Does Photography Mean to You? Unfortunately, John Ballmer doesn't feature in it, but maybe he will in a future edition. But anyway, the book contains 89 professional award-winning photographers from around the world explaining what photography means to them. It's a little book that just fits nicely into your pocket and that's available to purchase from uh, www.bluecoatpress.co.uk and that's just for £9.99 uh, in sterling plus obviously the um, post and packing. Just following on from talking about our initiatives, I've noticed over the last uh, week or so, a couple of weeks, I suppose, uh, a number of people doing really good stuff, starting podcasts, publishing projects, video newsletters and photo book selling platforms. These are all great initiatives. They're all independent, literally one person at home with a laptop or a computer just accessing all that 
free, uh, I suppose, possibility of promoting what they're doing through Twitter, through Instagram and through Facebook, setting themselves up with a little website and kind of spreading a combination of information and inspiration and really reaching out to the independent community. And I use that word advisedly because increasingly I'm seeing the most innovative, the most creative projects coming out of the independent sector. And so it's great to see that. And uh, I think a lot of this has come out of uh, lockdown. I'm always somebody who likes to see the positive in any, everything, I should say, and anything. So um, really good to see that, those kind of positive initiatives coming out of lockdown. And uh, I've long called for um, such kind of independent projects to be undertaken. And perhaps with people being stuck in their homes, it's kind of force them to actually get down and given them the time perhaps to get down and make them ha make them happen so we'll continue to promote all of those independent initiatives through our twitter at un of photo um and we welcome them all to the independent photographic community and uh, i really wish them well over the coming months i know that that first episode that first issue those first few weeks are always the most difficult and then you suddenly find you've got to keep going and then you realize wow it's not going to get any easier i can say that having done this podcast for as long as we have regular listeners to the podcast will know that it's been created in a shed for the last couple of years Initially, I spoke into the wrong side of the microphone and the audio wasn't particularly good and I managed to get that sorted out. This week's episode, I hope, sounds better than ever, clearer, and perhaps my voice sounds a little bit richer. Who knows? Reason for that is I've upgraded to a better quality microphone and kind of audio setup. So I really hope that you can notice that. If you can't, well, never mind. It's only cost me a few quid, but it's worthwhile, I hope. But anyway, uh, so I hope you've enjoyed this episode, new microphone or not. And um, I really appreciate you listening. And I think that's something that's important to say at this point, because all of the support and the kind comments really make it worthwhile. Uh, there are difficult times for people and we're all going through different kinds of pressures. But as always, the most important thing is to be kind to others and, of course, to take care. Mm -hmm.